Welcome to Make Things That Matter, the podcast where we explore impactful products and the cultures that create them. I'm your host, Andrew Scottsko, and if I'm doing my job well, each episode of this show will help you to do meaningful work, make things that make things better, and have a great experience doing it. My guest in this conversation is Petra Ville, a product leadership coach and the author of Strong Product People, which has long since been my go-to book for the people development side of being a product leader. If you're coaching product people, you need her book. It's that simple. In this conversation, we dive deep into why and how a community of practice can level up your team and save you training budget at the same time, how to deal with cross-cultural differences in product teams, and also, maybe most importantly, how to approach making really hard calls as a product leader, like shutting down an entire product or team. So with all that, please enjoy Petra Villa. Petra. Welcome to the show. It is so great to have you here. I am such a fan. I'm, I'm a total fanboy for your work for, for years now. So this is just a delight for me. How are you? Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. I'm fine. And I'm, yeah, we, we were Twitch up friends since a few years, right? So yeah, exactly. It, it's so much fun when you finally get to like engage and meet your Twitter friends. Indeed. You're like, yay, they're that, yeah. they're, they're, they are that person I hoped they were. And no longer just this profile picture that I constantly exactly. see online. Yeah, <laughs> That's now, so they, good, now yeah. they now they move, they react. They're not the static little 150 <laughs> pixel image. This is great. They're so much, so so yeah. rich, <laughs> so rich. Yeah, communication, meeting real people. It's the best thing that you could do. Absolutely, absolutely. So we're going to get into <laughs> a lot of different topics in today's conversation. You know, it's not that often that we get two product leadership coaches together to to geek out on all the things, but. Before we dive into all that, I think it's really fun for people just to get to know you a little bit. So you're some of the, some of the folks in the U.S. may not be familiar with you. You're based in Germany, but tell us a little bit about like how did you find your way to this very you know unique little niche that we both live in? How did you get here? And my niche is even smaller, as I only coach product leads, so the people managing product people. So that's a really small niche to operate in. Yeah, I was. I'm a trained engineer, so that's how all things started. And really early on, the rest of my engineering team, so my peers, they told me, hey, could you maybe go talk to the customers because you seem to have a talent in doing this and then just come back and bring us the requirements because then we don't have to do that. So even while I was still coding, I was this user researcher on the development team to some extent. And I liked that role and that then I became a project manager because these were the people that were making the calls. Back at the time, and product management was not, at least in Germany, a thing or a role that people had maybe at Unilever or something like that, if you were responsible for washing detergents or something like that, but not in <laughs> digital roles in Germany. Yeah, and from there, I had several stunts at SAP and a smaller social networks, which is called Ding right now. It's the German version or the German version of LinkedIn, I'd say. Yeah, transitioned into a product role there. And luckily had some great people to learn product from. So as I had a lot of management folks coming in from eBay and knowing about what good product management could look like. So they already had this idea of what we're currently doing. So we were already trying and experimenting with Agile, but it was not the full story as we know, both of us know. Mm -hmm. So figuring out how delivery works is just one mm -hmm. side of the metal, so to say. And these folks from eBay, they already had experienced how product management could work in better ways. So they brought an, in some product coaches and helped us to to learn from the best, so to say. That was actually pretty cool training on the job. It's a exactly. relatively recent phenomena that there's like 
you know, trainings you can just go do. That's that's a pretty new thing. <laughs> yeah, it's a pretty new thing. It was not a thing back in the day. So, yeah, we just were, yeah, getting all shit together and see what we could do to help the engineers to figure out what is worth building, right? So that was what, mm-hmm. what, what we did early on. So what was really great about that company, Zing, is that we had such a vibrant product community within the organization. So really early on, all, all of us, more or less the same age, all of us basically wanted to learn this one thing called product management. Nobody knew how to do it. Nobody had figured mm-hmm. it out yet. Mm-hmm. So we were learning together and from each other a lot. And it was really a, a nice thing and a bit of a booster for what we what we did. So that was super cool. Plus the external coaches helped tremendously, I'd say. And then, yeah, from there, I just climbed a ladder from the junior product role to the product role to the senior product role. And at some point I left to become a head of product in a smaller startup who was dealing with online translations. Google Translate was not a thing or not not big enough, at least to be used in a mainly B2B context. So there was what we were up for to help people to get translations in minutes. Hopefully there was the idea. <laughs> and therefore we, 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 we created systems where more than, I think we had 16,000 translators at some point in time in the system doing translations for the company and for our clients. So it was super interesting to work on that backend tools, plus all the tools where people could order their translations and review them and mm. the reviewing process and all these kind of things, right? Who was that for? Was that for like, was that sort of like targeted at B2B or was that for like, what sort of customers were using that? Yeah, it was mainly B2B that we were targeting, but we were not preventing B2C folks from just like ordering a smaller contract translation or something like that. But definitely we wanted to reach out to the B2B customers, the bigger accounts that then would have bigger translation volumes, obviously, plus helping software companies to do software translations in a more automated way which was pretty new at that time as well. So we even had to convince people that it's not a good idea to hard code all the translation into the code. So that was <laughs> that. That's what we were talking about. That was the education you were ahead that of your was time. going on at that point in time. <laughs> yeah. yeah, and I, I became a managing director at that company at some point in time. And that's maybe something that we can talk about a bit later because... We didn't see the hockey stick with mm. this translation company at some point in time. And then we had to make this decision. Okay. How are we going about it? And at one point we decided, okay, it doesn't make sense to have such a big product organization if, if it doesn't, if the business doesn't scale at the level we wanted to scale. And so we kind of, yeah, removed the whole product organization from the company. So mm. the company is still there. They're still running the translation agency. Wow. And it looks like they're still using the same software 12 or 13 years later, which is weird. A little bit yeah. odd. A little bit odd. I just ordered something from them the other day and it's still as I have left it. So it's super <laughs> like, interesting. I know this interface. <laughs> I know this interface. My teams have to have worked on that. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And then I, I had this kind of, okay, what, what am I doing? So is it the next bigger head of product role? Do I mm. want to go for a CPO role in a larger organization? Or do I become an interim product leader? And that's mm-hmm. what I decided to do. And from this interim's gigs, it became a coaching role because mm-hmm. the, the lead came back and people still asked if they could continue to have coaching sessions with me because it provided a lot of value to them. And so I became a product management coach. And some years ago, I decided to focus on product leads a bit more and help mm-hmm, them mm-hmm. to become coaches themselves for their product organizations. And there we go. Yeah. Um, 
Yeah, and that's what I do. And that's why I wrote my book at some point in time to share what I learned about how to code product people with the product leads out there. Love it. Thank you for that context. And yeah, for anybody who has not read Petra's book, Strong Product People, if you are a manager of product people or you are in any way responsible for the care and feeding of product people, please go get that book. It's like the must read. Thank you. Get you just a foundation. I'm not saying that because Petra's just on the show. Like I brought her on the show because I already knew her and loved her book and her work. So consider this the the strongest endorsement I have. Please go get it. (laughs) And we will link to all this stuff in the show notes. So it'll be easy for the listener to find all this stuff. Um, (laughs) Love it. So you and I are clearly both just complete nerds for people development and particularly within the, the product space. And so I think that'd be a great place to spend most of our, most of our conversation today because, you know, there, there is so much involved in building and leading a product organization. And, and you really cover it beautifully in the book, right? Everything from defining what does good even look like to building your confidence as a leader. And then, you know, then there's really like building and developing the org and the culture and so on and so forth. But I think it'd be really great to zoom in on the, the people development side because to me, that's where the rubber really meets the road. And, you know, I, I, there's an analogy. I, I think I heard, read it in one of your recent pieces about communities of practice, which I, I know we'll talk about. But, you know, there's this idea that I've also been thinking about for years now about the the sort of analogy between professional work in, in like a business culture and sports. Like I grew up as an athlete. And so as you know, if you're an athlete or a musician or anybody practicing a craft that isn't in normal business land, you spend a lot of time practicing and yeah. then you go to work at, in a job and you're like, where do I practice? When do I practice? Like what? It, it's so inverted. So I just think that'd be a really great place to dive in. What was it that made you start to really focus on that aspect specifically? I'm curious. I'm constantly thinking about how could I help product organizations to thrive and how could I help mm. product people and product leads to make their lives less stressful? Because Mm -hmm. I think product management by definition and by all the things that you have to know and think about and you have to make a lot of time to think things through and you only have a limited amount of time to think things through because constantly people are throwing stuff at you and are looking at you to make decisions and to mitigate the risk of building the wrong thing and blah, blah, blah. You know the drill. So everybody is short when it comes to time on the calendar. So how mm-hmm. could I help people to solve that to some extent? And one idea for the product leads, or I saw that working in many, many companies and with my clients is focusing on building a community of practice. Because I oftentimes find that the product leads think they need to do the onboarding. They need to do all the hiring and they need to do all the interviewing and they need to do all the people development. Mm-hmm. And it is such a weird perception because we always in our culture product culture these days, state of the art product culture, try to <laughs> distribute responsibility, right? So we're talking about empower teams in the sense mm-hmm. of, I know the product development teams, but why are we still having this weird perception of the product lead being responsible for the product culture and for mm. yeah onboarding and development, developing people? So I thought about, can we distribute that a bit more? And I had not to reinvent the wheel because there are product communities that are in, in, in a lot of companies, they have vibrant product communities. I interviewed 17 people last year and I think I published 11 of these interviews about hmm. their communities of practice. So, for example, Nezrin from Google, 
shared how they organizing community of practice work at Google and Europe and what they do and what are rituals that work well and all these kind of things. So we already mm -hmm. have our poster child somewhere and there can be companies from big to small. It's not only the large ones that all of us know. It can be smaller ones that really master this art of having a community that is learning and sharing and uh, where people development is by the people. Mm -hmm. It sounds a bit boring. Mm -hmm. So from the people, by the people. <laughs> I know. We're going to democratize people development. <laughs> yeah. Super boring. Sorry about that. But no, no, it's cool. It so really quick, is let's, an let's, important let's just, topic to look into. A hundred percent. But really quick, I actually realized, let's set a baseline, just a conceptual foundation here. So for someone who's yeah. not familiar with this topic already, like what is a community of practice? What does that mean? There are all sorts of communities of practice, but for most of the companies or for most of the people, it means that The product people, the people that are sharing the same role, so to say, coming together every once in a while. And they can be from a daily stand up to a quarterly session to an annual get together, right? They could be everything, but there usually is rhythm and they usually have rituals. And then there usually is a purpose for the community. And they could be either getting better in what we do, learning and sharing from each other and together. Or it could be things like, yeah, agreeing on product principles. So how are we making decisions? Not so much strategic work, not so much road mapping work, not so much planning what we're currently doing, not so much aligning on what everybody's currently busy with. So that's basically red flags. If I see community of practice meetups <laughs> where they're just checking in on It's what everybody's currently doing. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And they're just more of the stuff that everybody does every day. Right. But Yeah. To come back to your sports metaphor, I think community of practice is the moment when everybody's pausing what they're currently doing and really reflect on how are we doing things? Are we doing things in a way that is efficient and effective and actually, yeah, healthy for everybody? Could we maybe optimize how we going about certain things? And then it's, mm -hmm. for a lot of community of practice, another purpose is to bring in internal stimulus from outside of the company. So they often have things like external speakers coming or a lot of my clients run book clubs. So people are reading mm, a book yeah. together and learning together and share what they learn. For some, it's just, yeah, a talk or listening to a podcast episode and then just share what they learned and what everybody heard and all these kind of things. So it can be all thoughts of things, but it's really this pausing, reflecting, learning what makes the communities of practice great for a lot of people. And then Some companies have various communities of practice. So there might be a product leadership one and the whole product organization. And then the one for the junior product people that just learn about how product management works. And maybe there's even a bigger one with all the design and UX and user research folks or mm -hmm. yeah, whatever it mm -hmm. is. So slicing and dicing of communities of practice is another topic. But I'm trying to put myself in the shoes of a company leader who's not already familiar with this model. So to somebody who's unfamiliar, other, let's say they've only heard what you just said and they're interested, but maybe a little bit wary, a little bit skeptical. Is this a good use of time? Let's talk about before we get to how to do this, let's talk about like why to do this and address maybe some of the fears or concerns that come up for people. Like, so what, what do you hear that comes up from, let's say it's a CPO or a CEO who's saying like, wow, you want to carve out how much time for this? Hmm. Yeah. Yeah, that's a great question. And my answer usually is it really helps you to, first of all, 
save a lot of training budget because mm. everybody on a company usually has this, they heard about their training Avis thing in the corporate world. So even if somebody is joining after university as a junior, whatever, they have this kind of, okay, companies hold trainings and I can go there and I maybe even want to have a certificate afterwards, right? So everybody knows that that is a thing. So at some point they will ask for these things and maybe it's not a training, maybe it's a conference that they want to attend or whatever it is, but it's definitely expensive or actually is costing mm -hmm. you some money. Mm -hmm. They want to travel there and all these kind of things. And I think all these things are valuable. But if you would have a community of practice, for example, one person could go and bring back the learnings or one person could go and bring back the, this actually was not a great training provider. Maybe we should pick another one, right? So mm. training might scale within the community of practice. So the learnings, yeah, may get transferred from one person to the other. There are things where this is not working, right? For know-how, if people need to acquire new know-how, like learning something about GDPR or data privacy laws or something like that, then you send one person off, they bring in the knowledge home, that works. Mm, if we okay. talk about practicing new skills, then it's not possible to bring things home. Then it's that they need to learn together and yeah, learn on the job and while they apply certain things. But even then... You could send two or three people to the training. They experience how to do things, learn how to facilitate an efficient, I don't know, retrospective, whatever it is, random mm -hmm, example. Mm -hmm. And you send them off and already briefing them that they would need to run an internal workshop afterwards to share with their colleagues what they learned. And that is such a different trigger for them to go to this training because now they're not only paying attention for themselves, and not only mm -hmm. thinking about, okay, how could that help me in my current situation? They already think about, and how could that help all of my colleagues? And how would I be able to explain that? Mm -hmm. And so that's, you, you're saving training budget, you're saving, yeah, conference budget and all these kind of things. Plus you have this upside of everybody is learning. And as we know, so I really like Daniel Pink's autonomy, mastery and purpose. So that's what people are mm -hmm. thriving for. And mm -hmm. mastery is often experienced while they're explaining things to others. And that's often happening in the community of practice context. And the ones that are not yet ready to explain stuff to others, maybe the junior people, they gain mastery from attending this internal community of practice events, right? So everybody is, there's something to learn. So the community of practice has definitely a positive impact of the, on the motivation of everybody because of this mastery part of autonomy, mastery and purpose, right? So that's another thing. So saving trainings budget, mm, then a it. positive impact on motivation plus onboarding time that the leaders are usually saving. And onboarding is usually better if it's done by the community and not only by one single leadership person that then has to take care of all the onboarding activities. So why not leveraging all the product people, not all maybe, but some create a small learning group for you, new joiner and say like, hey, look, these are the 20 things I want you to understand. And here are the 10 people that could help you to understand those. And then onboarding still has a bit of a feedback loop with the, the line managing person. For sure. But mm. a lot of the other sessions could be done by the community folks or by your peers and all these kind of things. So time savings are a reason for 
looking into the community of practice topic. Yeah, that was a super thorough response. Thank you. My mind is spinning with all the implications now that you've opened it up because just given the current environment economically, people are going to be drawn very much to the saving trading budget thing or getting a more efficient use of their investment in training because you could say, okay, let's say we've got five people in this little community within our, of, of practice. Okay, this one person's going to go here, learn this, bring it back. This other person's going to go here, learn this other thing, bring yeah. it back, et cetera, et cetera. It, it reminds me so much of a model I, I think is, I think it's very common in medical schools where they talk about like see one, do one, teach one. Ah, and that's when yeah, you really nice. know the thing is when you do, yeah. we've done all three. You saw it at yeah. the conference you went to, you learned it yourself and then you taught it to somebody else. Now you really know it. And it's like, cool, yeah. if you can repeat that across the team, like, okay, we just leveled up the, the yeah, game here. Exactly. Yeah. And frankly, all of the things that one product person needs to learn are out there somewhere for free. So it's not that all our thought leaders are keeping all the things secret that they actually think product people Opposite. should be doing. So yeah, exactly. So it's in the books, it's in the talks, it's in all these podcast episodes. And why not make use of that, especially in times when maybe training budget is goes? And why not watching a talk together and then try the thing and then talk about your learning, really inspect and adapt as agile people would maybe call it. And I think that really works brilliantly. So that's a, a great reason for giving your people a bit more time to try mm -hmm. things out and to share with each other because a bit of budget and time is usually the two things that it needs. So you need, they need to have a mandate to do that. I find this really appealing as a concept for a lot of reasons, but two that jump out to me, like I'm reflecting on two conversations I had with product leaders yesterday. And in both of those conversations, there was concern around how do I develop my people when I am already so strapped for time? Like yep. I'm thinking of a CPO friend I was talking with like 24 hours ago and she was like, I would love to spend more time with my juniors. I don't have it. <laughs> I'm just out of time. And so feeling this tension between the responsibility and interest in developing your people and the difficult realities of managing a calendar without burning out. So I think that's brilliant because as you alluded to earlier, we talked so much about distributing responsibility, right? Pushing decisions down to the people closest to them, but we kind of skipped the rest of it. Like what, why does, you know, a CPO doesn't have to do it all themselves. Like, what a great way to distribute this as well. It just makes perfect sense now that we're opening yeah, it up. Exactly. And we just, why, why doing it in parts of our work, but not applying the same methodology in other parts of our work, right? And keeping this hierarchy is such a weird thing. If all of us are trying to organize our organizations in more resilient ways as more in organic ways and more like a cell and not so much like a pyramid, right? That's what mm -hmm. all of us try to do. And I think a community of practice is just another thing that you could do to build a more resilient product organization. So and especially also, I think it's a, it'll long term, like it's a long term view on it. But if you're investing in your org, like hopefully you're already taking that view. But <laughs> it occurs to me that also it will over time reduce your let's just call it your error rate because People need a safe space to try stuff, right? Like you yeah. don't want your PMs trying the new thing they learned on the most important thing of the year, right? For the first time, you, exactly. you would much rather they screw up the first three times, like in a safe training environment where it yeah. doesn't really matter. 
Exactly. That's maybe the tricky part. You want them to try things. Mm-hmm. We oftentimes as product leads forget to make the room for them to learn new things because maybe it takes them a bit longer to create this outcome-oriented roadmap. Now they have been creating output-oriented roadmaps for mm-hmm. ages, right? So mm-hmm. you need to create that room. But if you create that room, that is an investment. And why not making the most out of this investment by them talking about their learnings with the peers and helping them to understand, okay, is it something that they should try as well? And what are best practices and what they have learned? And curation, for example, is another good thing because maybe people always say like, yeah, I read that book. That was not helpful to me, but this other piece really applies in our situation. So that's maybe what we go do more of or something mm, like that. Yeah. So content filter is something that a community of practice usually offers as well. Some of my clients even do, they have learning boards, curated learning boards, mm. where mm. the community of practice is maintaining a massive mural or mural board. And some of them are even recording small Loom videos yeah. for their peers and colleagues and explain why they, why they like this particular book. And then you have this one book here and around it are 10 videos of colleagues that actually say why, mm. they, li- why they like the book and what it helped them with. So things like that is an oh. idea as well. Okay, so we, we, we've spent a good amount of time here. I think we've sold it pretty effectively. If anyone's, if they're still listening, they're probably <laughs> sold by now. But let's talk really quick about like, what would you say from what you've seen so far? Let's, let's put some handles on this thing. If someone wants to do this, they say, all right, Petra, you sold me. Let's do it. What are the top, you know, two or three things they need to do and or avoid? Like, what should they not do and what should they do? So if you're in a individual contributor role and you're listening to this, then just go do it. Then it's more like a grassroots movement and go find some of your peers that want to learn one particular thing as well, right? And just go do it. Don't ask for permission. Maybe even just spend some of your time in learning. Maybe run a first book club and see how it goes. I think that helps. At some point in time, you may want to reach out to your line manager and say like, hey, we tried this thing. It it was amazing. Maybe we can do it on a larger scale for the whole product organization or something like that. But a good grassroots movement is what we need. If you're in a leadership role listening to that, I think one thing that you want to avoid or one thing that you should, that should be your goal is a self-sustainable community of practice. So you should not be running the show. Nor should your product operations team or your agile coach or whoever has the tendency to run and own the community of practice, right? That's not something that we want to do. So you have to encourage people to start doing that. And people or companies have the tendency to totally rush into this community of practice thing. So you sold the idea. I like it. Let's do it. What can we do? And then there are massive programs. I think it's more successful if you let people do the work. You first of all tell them, hey, we as a company are fine if you invest 5%, 10%, 20% of your time in, in learning. We're happy if you mm. read a book in the working hours. Go do this, but please make sure to share with your peers what you learned. So encouragement, I think, is where, where everything starts. That's exactly what I said. Like mm-hmm. You need to allow them to invest their working hours in these kind of things. And maybe hand them a small budget like, okay, look, here's budget by or here's budget. You can attend this hybrid event, which is rather cheap. And you can then bring home the learnings or share the talks with your colleagues or whatever it is. But it helps everybody to understand, okay, there is a, a certain commitment from the company and a bit of an investment 
in us. And it does not have to be thousands of euros, I'd say, despite your product organization being super big and it's a lot of books that you need to buy. But <laughs> but usually that's just like a small amount of money, maybe building a bit of a product library. Yeah. And that's basically it. And then just tell them that it's fine if they do so. Maybe that's then step number two is help them to compile a, a bit of a backlog for the learning topics and help people mm. to find each other if they're interested in the same topics. But it's again, something that you could encourage. And then people, product people know how to create a topic, a backlog of things. So I think it's, <laughs> they will they make will a spreadsheet. Do, I promise. Yeah. It's okay. <laughs> they, they will do the work. So it's a lot about encouragement and just getting out of the way and let them learn what they think they need to learn. It's oftentimes not exactly what the product imagine that they should learn right now, mm-hmm, but that's mm-hmm. fine. People know best what they would need to improve on to do their job in better ways, I guess. So, yeah. And even if sometimes not, then they will have learned somebody something afterwards. So, yeah. I, I really appreciate that. It also occurs to me that I think some people listening to this are going to have the concern that you just spoke to of like, oh, what if they go learn something that's it's not relevant or we don't need it. And yeah, I guess that's always a little bit of a risk, but you can provide some guidance there. And it also seems that this is a really good way, now that I'm thinking about it, to kind of, you can almost like Trojan horse in a lot of other things <laughs> you would want people to, to learn anyway. You're like, okay, let's say John, my new junior, you know, he really needs to improve his ability to deliver a compelling story, right? Or, or to make a compelling pitch. Well, Teaching his peers and his community about something is a really good way with low stakes for John to get better as a speaker, as a presenter, as a storyteller. Exactly. To rise and shine even in a junior role, right? So that's, that's perfect. It's such a motivation kick for him. And it's such a great way to build again your product culture in a way where people say like, Oh, even the juniors on the team actually can dig out stuff where I as a senior really learn from and could mm-hmm. improve or add to my toolkit or something like that. So, yeah, it's it's just a great way to to look at people development, personal development. and Yeah, it reminds me, do you ever read the, uh, there's a book I love that I haven't read in a few years, but I remember when I first read it, I, I kind of like had one of those good freak outs where I was like, oh my God, they, they said, <laughs> they finally, someone said it, someone did the thing. It's a book called An Everyone Culture. Have you heard? Oh, you? I haven't read that one. Okay. You should check this one out. I think this is so in your zone. You're going to love it. So the, the, the short version of it is it's by a Harvard organizational psychologist, I believe, named it's Robert Keegan. And I forget mm, his co-author's oh, yeah. name. Yeah. He's a one of the best authors out there, thinkers out there about building learning organizations, changing organizations, things like this. And the idea of it, they introduced this concept of, of it's a very long-winded thing, but the acronym is DDO, which stands for Deliberately Developmental Organization. Mm-hmm. Bit of a mouthful, but mm-hmm. it's sort of a meta concept for what we're talking about here of like, yeah. what if, what if you could build organizations where this is why they call it an everyone culture, where everyone was along for the ride of learning and growth as opposed to like, you know, just that special like leadership development track or something like this. And so that I this like these two ideas are colliding in my mind. I'm going, oh, wow, a community practice is maybe one of the best vehicles I've seen yet to actually do the DDO thing. Yeah. Yeah. It is the implementation of exactly that. Right. And another thing that we maybe forgot to discuss so far is it really helps you with retaining employees because if they kind of feeling 
always gaining more mastery in your organization and having this room to try and experiment with new methodologies and frameworks and ways of doing things, they're so much more likely to stay with your company. So that is another thing that you might solving as a company slash leader if you're having a community of. Beautiful. Well, let's shift gears here a little bit. And one of the things I just thought would be fun to for us to chat about briefly is are there any cultural differences between, you know, Europe and the U.S. that you feel, I don't know, that really jump out to you as something worth discussing? So I'm mainly working with companies and product people in Europe and the U.S., I'd say. So just so we have kind of an idea what my experience mm-hmm. it's all about. A bit of Asia sometimes, but that is basically it. So that's that's w- w- what we're talking about. I think networking is something that comes easier when you kind of having this US cultural background. It's just and, and it's easier because of people tend to Hey, hi, I'm Petra. What are you doing? People are so curious about other people and all these kind of things, right? Where Europeans, especially the ones that are more north of the European continent, there's so Uh much heads down and so much working all day long and being professional is working a lot, is a lot of output, is a lot of being super serious. And it's not so much about Mm. fun together, team events and all these kind of things. I think in the US, it's way more common to have nice team events and to maybe even already have something like product organization community Mm -hmm. to some extent. Maybe it's not so focused on the learning bit, but people tend to hang out with each other more. That's I'd say that's one of the differences. Yeah, but other than that, it's similar. Too many companies I'm talking to are not having any formal community of practice, not even the, the, the minimal viable community, so to say. So there are always one or two people that are sharing and, and yeah, take care of the juniors or something like that. It's not that that is not existent, but it's not that they're having these rituals in place and this rhythm in place for sharing what I was talking about mm. in the beginning. So I think that is a, a, a bit of a difference. That makes total sense. For some reason, I've seen this come up a lot lately in conversations with, uh, with other product leaders about kind of this, this sense of how do, how do we do things cross-culturally? I think a lot of this is coming up now that you know, remote or distributed teams are much more of the norm. I mean, that was always going to happen anyway, but thank you. Thank you, COVID. That happened really fast. One of the books that I find myself recommending a lot lately and it's called The Culture Map by, I believe mm-hmm. her name is Erin Meyer. She's a professor mm-hmm. at NCAD. And uh, are, you, are you familiar with this one? Yeah, it's a great yeah. book. I'm yeah, recommending it, it a lot as well. Yeah. How are you seeing it help people you're recommending it to? Oh, that is a good question. I think for so most of the people are handling this cultural differences just by gut feel and really reactive. So whenever conflict occurs, then they're wrapping their heads around first of, okay, what's the conflict? And at some point I point out, maybe it's a cultural difference that we're looking at here. Have you, have you thought about that? And then it helps them just to think a bit more about all these kind of things and taking it more into account into whatever they do. A lot of product leads ever actually never reflected on the fact that they have, I don't know, 20 people on the team and they're coming from 18 countries all over mm-hmm. the globe. And they, they haven't, haven't even thought about it. It's just like, that's, that's yeah. the world we live in. 
So mm-hmm. the people have to adopt to company culture or they actually assume that there is a company culture that people could adapt to. Yeah. So that's what actually the book helps people to reflect a bit more on that. That might be the root cause for some of the conflicts that they're having or why some messages don't stick with the, with the peers and colleagues and, and organizations. So all these kind of things. Yeah. I, I've been referring to it just casually with people as kind of like the cultural iceberg that can be the iceberg to your Titanic, right? Yeah. It's like this thing where you, you don't, if you're not looking for it, you don't think about it. You don't tend to think about it, but something's wrong and you can't figure out what it is. And just like, there's this like in, invisible friction on everything. And you're like, why is, what is going on? And I, like, I went through this experience myself a few years ago before the pandemic. And, and I just remember that book kind of, I, I felt like somebody just turned on the lights and I went, Oh, I see what's going on here. And then it made a like, I mean, I could go into it if you want, but it like made a huge difference. So it's something I, I, I'm very, yeah, yeah I totally agree. Can, and it's not only, it's not only culture in terms of countries and continents. It's even generations right now because not all the mm-hmm. running gags that we have been doing are working for the people that are now joining our companies, right? So for these kind of things, I just like prepared for a talk that I will be giving in, in four weeks or something like that. And I was talking about the storytelling book or product evangelizing book, Selling the Dream by Guy Kawasaki, mm-hmm. who was a product evangelist for Macintosh. And then I did a pre-run of the, uh, of the talk and somebody told me, okay, what did Macintosh do? And I was like, oh, ah, wow. Okay. So, <laughs> so, so now we're talking. So now I have this kind of Macintosh, Apple Macintosh, Apple <laughs> on the slide. But, but yeah. it, it's not only cultural differences in the countries that we come from. It's cultural differences, even in generations and all these kind of things, which is new to our IT and software world. But yeah, that's where we are. There's the second and third generation of people doing these jobs right now. So yeah. 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 I feel like we're almost like, I feel like we're in the second generation of product basically, right? Like as a, as a field or a craft, the, the product discipline is, I feel like it's where design was in the, in the early nineties, right? Yeah. yeah like maybe. Yeah. It's, it's, it, it's sort of just, it, it's got mind share now, but that, but like the implementation of that is, is not widely distributed yet. So. You know, we got a couple of good decades ahead of us of, of work. And it's not equally distributed. So some really mastering yes, the thing, yes. but others have never heard of it, for example. Yeah. Yeah. That's a great way to put it. I want to switch gears here. And as we start to close out the conversation, I want to go into something that I'm calling the hard calls segment. So this is where I ask my guest, a product leader such as yourself to talk about a hard call they had to make and how they made it, what was the context and, and what they learned from what happened. And the reason for this is I'm finding in conversations with product leaders that so much of the, the, the thing that makes this hard are the decisions that we have to make that are not the simple decisions. And I think it's so helpful to hear others and how they processed through challenges and, and difficult decisions so that we get a little bit of distance from our own. So I'd love to ask you, Petra, if you were willing, could you share with us a a hard call you had to make and what happened? Yeah, the hardest call that I may have made in the past is, and I was explaining it a bit in the beginning of the session when I was managing director for this translation company called Tolingo, that at some point we were just like not seeing the business grow at a speed 
that investors would like to grow and therefore we had so this, this like kind of investor vc backed yeah yeah, yeah. totally vc backed okay. exactly and there was business so it was not that so zero to one worked well and then we grew the business to a certain extent but reached plateau and mm. couldn't even if trying 100,000 things couldn't drive it beyond that point right so we leveraged mm. all the optimization yeah benefits that that we found and all these kind of things and beyond that it was such a small margin business and we just didn't make enough money, so to say. So at some mm. point we had to make this call of, are we closing this down? And mm. will 100 people lose their jobs? Is that a good idea? And what could we do about it? It obviously wow. was not one meeting when we realized that we're not doing well and that we had to make this hard call. So over months and months, we always tried to make it work and tried new thing. But at some point you have to say like, okay, look, we tried all the things that, that we had on this whiteboard. We had countless idea sessions about what else could we try? Is it marketing? Is it kind of sales that we need to nail? Is the product good enough? All these kind of things. But we couldn't make it work. So first of all, we had to realize, okay, we can't make it work. We are running out of ideas, mm. even the crazy ones. And then what to do about it? And at some point, I made the call that we're closing down the whole product and engineering department just mm. to save the rest of the company, so to say. And that was not a pleasant conversation to have with all of my team and the engineering department. Yeah. But, and that was the good thing, the investors totally supported us in this, okay, we, we're not firing the people because that in Germany is super hard to do anyways. Right, we just right. helped them to find new roles and just like shrinking this department time, time over time over time. And that's exactly what we did. So the first one that resigned was me mm, and I still wow. was helping the people to find the job. But that was just like out of, I think everybody needed the signal. Okay. She's really serious about all of that. We have to close all of these things down and she's taking the cut first. So I decided yeah. to quit and I was still going to the company every day and trying to help people find new roles, which wow. was easy. The economic, the economy was booming back at the time. So I think it took us three months to find role for all of the people on the team. So it was not, not that hard, but the call at first was a hard call. The session that I had with all the team, all these eyeballs staring at me, oh, man. telling them, yeah. okay, we won't, we won't be able to pay all your salaries in half a year from Ooh. now. So let's go find yeah. new roles for all of us. It was not a fun session wow. to have, but I still think it was a good decision we made because as I said, the company's still around. So all the salespeople, all the translators, all these kind of folks are still making good money out of that and still, yeah, earn their rent. So, and all the developers and product people found new roles. Totally. So I'd love to zoom in a little bit on that just for a minute here. I'm imagining, right, especially when people's jobs are on the line, right? And it affects their livelihoods and, and their life yeah. writ large, not just their job. You know, that's always something that you take very seriously. And clearly this is your option of last resort, but I'm curious, like what else did you try? What else did you look at in terms of options? I'm imagining there was some point in time where you were like, okay, this is the best choice amongst several difficult options. Is that how that went or how did you get there? Yes. I said, first of all, we really brainstormed the hell out of it to see like uh, if there are other things that we could do. We gained some traction with totally upskilling our sales department because it was a lot of cold calling and then converting the B2B customers into sales. 
We tried a bigger service portfolio where we were onboarding clients in better ways so that they hopefully will send all their translations our way and only some of the translations have been all the things that we've been doing. And all of them had a positive impact, but not to a magnitude that it would have saved the company or actually helped the investors to see the hockey stick that they wanted us to, to bring, right? And we knew that they were not about to invest in this company again. And we knew we were about to run out of money in, yeah, first it was six months, then it was like four months. So things shaped mm-hmm. closer. And we had, so that basically forced us to make the decision. I think it's easier to make this decision in a country like Germany where people are insured against unemployment. So they would have... Mm gotten 60% of their monthly income for, I don't know, a year or something like that. So it's not that it's super Mm, crazy if you fire people. They still can pay for the rent and then they have a year to find a new job, which in software development is a a totally okay time frame, right? I think that is why this call is way easier to make in Germany than it would be in the US, for example, at least from what I hear. Mm. So yeah, but it's the things that we tried to do. And then some point, I think we even discussed it with the team. So with the development and product team and all those folks, because we knew, okay, we have to do something. And is it closing down the company entirely? Or is it, what do you think about just us finding new roles and wrapping things up so that the software is still there, software is still running? How many people do you think the company still needs to, to keep? to make sure the software is still running. And I think it was just like one person. So one person stayed mm-hmm. being a bit of the IT admin <laughs> and keep things up. <laughs> just um, keeping it alive. The, keeping it alive. And all the others left. Wow. So I'm really curious, how did that change you as a leader? Like what did you learn from that and how did it evolve you? Mm, I think that the part that... So what changed me as a leader more was the time that was that lay before of that, the two years where I was in a managing director role and really had to think about, okay, what is the operating system for this company? Because that basically was my mm-hmm. role back at the time. Before of that, it was super startup chaos. A lot of people, everybody was mm-hmm. doing stuff. So I really <laughs> invested a lot of my time to think about, okay, how do we make sure everybody's moving into the same direction and they know what why they're doing the things that they're doing? And what are the guidelines that they need to make most of the decisions themselves? So I think that is that is what changed me more as a leadership person because I really firsthand experienced what a difference it makes if you have a strategy and you have something like OKRs. We were not calling it that back then, but something like that mm-hmm. was in place to see like, okay, now everybody's moving. And it's not only that they're moving, they're moving into the right direction. So how cool is that? I think that changed me more. As the leader in total. Yeah. And the rest is just, I'm, I'm still in touch with some of these folks because it's just like, yeah, bringing you so much closer together. If you're going through things like that together, I think that is something mm-hmm. that is kind yeah. of, yeah, still there. Yeah. Well, thank you for sharing that. I really appreciate it. And I, I definitely admire the way you handled a extremely difficult situation. So I, I just appreciate you sharing that. Thank you. You're welcome. Absolutely. You know, I find that it's the questions we ask ourselves on a day-to-day basis that often shape our experience of things, what we do, how things go. And I'm curious, is there a question that you would have the listener start asking themselves if you could plant a question in their minds? 
Yeah, so one go-to question of mine really is, what are you going to do differently? This is my go-to question because I really think it primes you to action and really helps you to reflect, okay, if that is a problem that I'm currently having, what I'm going to do about it? Or if you go to a community of practice meetup, the question helps you to think about, okay, there's just that's not just a talk that I'm listening to. I could do something differently after listening to the talk. And what would that be? So that is actually a great go-to question of mine. I'm using it a lot myself and I use it a lot in the coaching sessions. So yeah, maybe one of my favorite. Beautiful. Beautiful. Thank you for that. Well, just in closing out, Petra, where can people find you online if they want to engage with you more deeply and how can listeners be helpful to you? Oh, interesting question. So finding me online is pretty easy. It's strongproductpeople.com or petra-villa.com. Depending on if you're more interested in the book or more interested in, in, in the coaching stuff that I do and all the writing that I do. I wrote a lot about communities of practice last year, by the way. So there are many, many blog posts that I have been sharing what I learned about communities of practice. So go read that if you're interested in that. And how could readers be helpful to me? I think it's more how could listeners be helpful to the community, the product community, the greater product community. I think that is what uh-huh. I would like to answer. And it's really Go out there, make product friends, even if it's just via Twitter, hang Andrew and Petra. And maybe <laughs> at some point in time, you can hang out with them and share what you learn. I think it's so important that we share what works well for all of us and learning together because it's still such a young profession and everybody's learning from bigger companies to smaller companies, junior people and senior people. All of us have some learnings to share. And I think that is, that would help me a lot as well. So. If you know something, if you learn something, if there's something that works for you, please share it with the world. We're still having too few examples, for example, for how does your product strategy look like? Not how you created Mm -hmm. it. A lot of people have written about that, but share examples. That would be so cool of the work that you do. Or if you have great product principles, go share them with the world. Not enough examples. So that's something that I would maybe encourage people to do. Beautiful. Beautiful. And we will link to all of that in the show notes. So Petra, big fan of your work. Thanks so much for spending some time with us and uh, really a pleasure. So thanks for being here. Yeah, really a pleasure. Thank you. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this, I'd be so grateful if you could do me a favor and take about 25 seconds to leave a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. That helps me reach way more listeners and it also helps me bring you more great guests. As always, please feel free to reach out to me anytime at connect at makethingsthatmatter.com. And until next time, my friends, leave them better than you found them. See you out there. Mm